This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, O Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. The real and the fake. When you have real election results like we did this week, it's probably good for the show that covers elections to let you know what they think about them. And so we will do just that with the greatest state in the union, Florida. Democrats in ascendancy for the first time in quite a long time in that state. And yet, is their victory real? Is DeSantis vulnerable? What does it say for the ever-reddening state of Florida and the 2024 Republican primary? On the other side, we have The Fake, one of my favorite shows on television, Succession, on HBO in their latest episode, doing something that I'd hoped they would do, The Murdoch Analog Family finally goes through an election night. And indeed, it's an eventful one, not only for the warring siblings, but also for their version of America. But do the twists and turns of that election night bear any resemblance to real election nights past? The creator of the show says that there's a few years that they drew from, and yet I think he's being coy. I believe that he really drew from one election. In fact, it's the most recent one. And I will draw all the parallels to both. Real or fake. Fake or real. The only thing that matters is that for Dog and Pony Show Audio, I'm Justin Robert Young, and this is Politics, Politics, Politics. Blue Florida possible? Well, last night, if you squinted and then you looked at all the breathless coverage about it, you might indeed think it is. Nikki Freed, the erstwhile leader of the Florida Democratic Party, woke up this morning and said, Good morning from Purple Florida. Why? Well, because in Duval County, The mayor of Jacksonville, a strong mayor, is a Democrat elect this morning. Donna Deegan, a former television news anchor, achieved a political upset on Tuesday by winning the mayoral race in Jacksonville. The city has historically been governed by Republicans. We'll get to that in a second. Her victory disrupts the political norm in Florida's largest city, where Republicans have held mayoral office for almost three decades, apart from a four-year hiatus. Deegan, founder of the Donna Foundation, a nonprofit organization aiding those diagnosed with breast cancer, prevailed over Daniel Davis, a Republican candidate who was barely endorsed by Governor Ron DeSantis. When I say barely, I mean that he did it on Twitter on a Friday in March and then never made a campaign appearance with him. 
Now, you could say that this is a ding to DeSantis. If he were taking care of his own in the state in which he is the governor, tending to the party for which he is the leader, that maybe he should have been in Jacksonville, as opposed to traipsing around the world, building up his foreign policy bona fides before he announces that he is running for president. Deegan's victory brings hope to Florida Democrats who have been total punching bags. We've talked about him a lot on this show. Jacksonville in particular has emerged as a fluctuating political region within Florida with Duval County voters demonstrating an alternating pattern of supporting Democrats and Republican candidates in recent years. Despite Davis's campaign outspending Deegan's fourfold and labeling her as radical for supporting the George Floyd protests, Deegan won 52% of the vote. Her triumph marks her as the first female mayor of Jacksonville, a city with a strong mayor form of government, thereby gaining her significant administrative powers. The election results indicate a shift in Jacksonville's political landscape, securing support from independents and crossover Republican votes, Deegan did, to make it over the finish line. Cool story, right? I think it's a cool story. And let's be honest here. For Florida Democrats, a glimmer of hope is essentially the dawning of a new star. But I want to just, I mean, I hate to be bad news guy for the Florida Democrats. Look, look, look. If anybody from the Florida Democrats is listening to this, number one, good job. You know, scoreboard. You win something, you should celebrate. We don't celebrate enough in in, in society. So you've taken a bunch of L's. You've really been on the ropes lately. We did a whole episode dedicated to the fact that you're essentially an, an extinct species currently. So any kind of win is a good win. So I'm going to direct this, not to the Florida Democrats, but rather to national media so hungry to find some kind of outlier victory that I think they're making this a little bit more than what it actually is. First off, the majority of voters in Duval County are registered Democrats, outnumbering Republicans by four percentage points. It is a large city. It is a city with a large black population. If you are not doing well in large cities with big black populations, then you're not doing your job as a Democrat. Biden won Duval County in 2020. Trump only won by 1.5 in 2016 over Hillary Clinton, not historically popular in Florida. And Andrew Gillum beat Ron DeSantis in 2018 by three and a half percent. Bill Nelson, the Democrat, beat Rick Scott, who went on to win for Senate in 2018 as well. Duval is not a gigantic red rock, okay? It is purple. My whole point, whenever I talk about the Democratic Party in Florida, is to say that Florida is a purple state. If you are not making it a purple state, then you are not doing your job. Florida is not Alabama. Florida is not. I think it's more purple than Georgia. And yet Georgia has been more purple than Florida recently. And I do believe that the biggest reason why is because there is more boots on the ground support for the Democrats in Georgia than Florida. 
But again, we're not running on the parade here, okay? For the Florida Democratic Party, one more time, celebrate. In fact, I'm going to give you some good measured commentary from somebody who actually ran this successful campaign or consulted to it. Ashley Walker, a consultant for soon-to-be Mayor Deegan, said that campaigning on local issues with a candidate who connected well with voters were key to flipping the mayoral office from red to blue. Quote, Democrats in Florida have to eat the elephant piece by piece. We have to go win these local areas that are purple and get down to the base of some local campaigns that have, and only then can we have some chance of coming back statewide. And that's true. Get your house in order in the place where you can. Go to count, number one, get the counties for which you should be winning back to voting for you. Get Palm Beach back to voting for you. Get Miami-Dade back to voting for you. Okay, Duval won, or sorry, DeSantis won Duval in the last election in 2022. So good, good. Win where you can. Then start challenging and making inroads to other parts of the state. To quote a great man, Florida Democrats often try to get credit for stuff they're supposed to do. I won Duval by 1.5%. You're supposed to, you low expectation having state party. This is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Only $1 a week gets you an ad-free feed of the show. If you want two bonus podcasts each and every week, one on Monday, one on Tuesday, that is double your podcasting output. Well, you can go and pledge for $3 a week. It's about the price of a cup of coffee. You were driving me to work. Would you like me to talk to you? Would you buy me a cup of coffee for it? Well, boy, you got the deal right there. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. But it also means that we give you a little update on news that we didn't cover here on this show, including OpenAI CEO Sam Altman making his uh, debut appearance before Congress to discuss policy regulation for the rapidly developing artificial intelligence industry. Among the key topics discussed were the need for a new federal agency dedicated to overseeing AI, the question of who owns the data that AI trains on and the potential influences of AI on future elections. Altman expressed openness toward establishing a new agency and suggested that existing models from other industries like the International Atomic Energy Agency should be considered. That would mean licensing of AI large language models, something that OpenAI suggested. The question of data ownership sparked a discussion around copyright law, and Altman proposed that individuals should have the ability to opt out of having their data used to train AI models. With respect to the potential influence of AI on elections, he acknowledges concern about the model's capability to manipulate, persuade, and spread disinformation. He made a distinction between generative AI models like ChatGPT and recommendation algorithms used by social media platforms. All right. Um, I'm sure this won't be the last time I'll do it, but I will say this out loud. 
I know people at OpenAI. I am very friendly with OpenAI. I have beta access to OpenAI stuff. I'm favorable to OpenAI. I, I do think OpenAI is a good company. I very much enjoy their products and I'm extraordinarily bullish on where large language models will take us. I'm also an internet optimist. And while I do believe that there is the capacity for misinformation from large language models, I also believe that there is a tremendous capacity for good. I think that there is a tremendous capacity for campaigns to get their message out. Like the genie is out of the bottle on infinite content. And so the question then becomes if AI tech essentially brings us outside of the concept in which we have all lived of a finite media universe, then what is misinformation? What is disinformation going forward when we are not worried necessarily about platforms, but rather filters? It's a little bit of a heady conversation that we can probably have a, a little bit later on. In terms of the nuts and bolts of the politics of it, I thought this went extraordinarily well for Sam Altman. I do understand criticism that this is regulatory capture, that uh, he is leading the race in terms, uh, he has the best product in chat GPT, he has the best product in GPT-4. And so now he's saying, ah, let's get a license. I get the regulatory capture argument. I also understand that from a DC perspective, they look at what happened with social media as them failing, as Congress failing. They very much believe that they were cowed by it. Regulation of something that is going to disrupt white collar jobs is a conversation that was going to come sooner rather than later. It benefits OpenAI to be the one to start it. Let me put it this way. By my view of large language models like ChatGPT4, which by the way, can already pass the bar. The industries that are going to be disrupted fundamentally are ones that hoard expertise. Among those, doctors and lawyers. I don't know the last time you checked, but do you know who becomes a politician? Lawyers, and sometimes doctors who were also lawyers. This is going to get ugly fast for professions like that. I believe that the tenor of DC toward OpenAI will only get more hostile from here. So it makes sense to start things off on a friendly note. I thought it was good for OpenAI. Diane Feinstein is back in D.C. and already making headlines for all the wrong reasons. During a scrum with reporters, she was asked whether or not she got on any messages from her colleagues after returning to the Senate, to which she said, what do you mean returning? I've been working. The reporter, and I'm paraphrasing here, said, well, obviously you've been working, but we mean returning to D.C., to which she said, no, I've been here, to which her staff wheeled her away. Whew. I initially only read the first part of that, and I thought it was Diane Feinstein just saying, yeah, 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 you know, I, 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 I'm always working, even when I'm resting at home, I'm always working. And then I read the second part and it reminded me of when 
an elder in your life says something, gets frustrated, says something that seems out of pocket, and you're like, no, 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 Nana. Uh, I'm sure what you mean by those people is those people in the supermarket, right? And then they just repeat something worse than what they had said the first time. And you're like, oh, geez. Oh, no. That's how I feel about Diane Feinstein right now. It is sad. All jokes aside, like, she's a political legend. I really, really, really wish that she had the gift of a dignified close to a legendary career. I'll leave it there. President Biden is facing criticism from Republican lawmakers for leaving Washington, D.C. for the G7 summit in Japan amid the ongoing debt limit negotiations. Several Republicans, including Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Representative Dusty Johnson and Senator Rick Scott called on the president to cancel his trip and focus on the pressing issues at home. Meanwhile, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy suggested that the American president should be more focused on domestic problems, especially as the country inches closer to a potential default. In defense of the trip, the White House argued that global leadership is a key responsibility of the American president, emphasizing the importance of the G7 summit. Biden, who had to shorten his trip to cancel visits to Papua New Guinea and Australia, assured that he would be in constant contact with his team during the summit and return on Sunday to resume debt limit negotiations. And yet, despite this, Republican lawmakers remain critical, insisting that Biden's physical absence from Washington can hinder momentum in the talks. Democrats, including Senator John Tester and Dick Durbin, defended the president's decision, arguing that he can lead negotiations remotely and that his attendance at the G7 is a high priority. I don't disagree with them. Uh, uh, obviously, Joe Biden's going to go to the G7 summit because the American president missing the G7 summit is a problem for which would take longer to solve than it would for him to go there. There is no doubt that it does hinder negotiations because it probably goes faster if Biden is in the room. I do think it is damning that Biden should have started this earlier. The The Democrats and the Biden administration were very much betting on the Republicans not being able to get their ducks in a row. But... It is what it is. This is mostly just partisan bickering and doesn't matter. What will matter is what happens when Biden gets back, because according to his own administration, we run out of money on June 1st and tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. That is coming far faster than he would prefer it. But here's something that I would prefer. You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Subscribe for $1 a week to get an ad-free feed and $3 a week to get two bonus episodes each and every week. Double your PX3. $3 a week at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Price of a cup of coffee. Come on. Now back to the show. Because if my team wins, they're going to shoot your team. Give me some sugar, man. 
I mean, maybe everyone voted for me. We don't know. It just makes an election so much more interesting when you're in it. Me, it always comes down to a couple old favorites. The blacks or the Jews. I spent like a hundred mil here. Couldn't I get a sniff of even a little guy? Organize a little coup down in old Peru? Literally do not know that. It could very easily be your f They love fires. Oh, yeah. Says the man who'd cut his son's throat and then eat him on the high pass. Well, can't get outflanked and we need to be fast, so I think we should call it, right? Let's call it. No, call it. no, 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 no. Those are clips from the most recent episode of Succession. If you don't listen or don't watch the show, rather, then you might not want to listen to this segment if you want to avoid spoilers. Uh, although I'm going to avoid spoilers about the plot of this episode that we care about, or at least the narrative of the 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 kids, the family, the uh, uh, the main characters, and why they are doing what they are doing. Suffice to say that I love the show, and if you are unfamiliar with the program, it follows the three children of a Rupert Murdoch-inspired media titan, somebody that owns various movie studios and television channels and uh, theme parks and cruise ships, a bunch of stuff. So the crown jewel of their media empire is a Fox News analog called ATN. And it is now in their fourth season that they have an election episode. America Decides is what it's called. And here is where I'm going to begin spoilers. So if you don't want to hear them, then via con Dios, I will see you guys next week. Good. Okay, Succession is a show that likes to rip a lot of stuff from the headlines. Uh, it was the moment in which I knew I was in love with this program, was in the first season. They had two episodes that specifically were things that I thought were fascinating, real life occurrences that would be ripe for great fictional television. The first was an episode in which a Bernie Sanders progressive analog politician flies to meet with the Rupert Murdoch analog, Logan Roy. And it is a, a thing that I've always been fascinated by ever since I used to read the Drudge Report back in the day. And you used to hear about these weekends that Rupert Murdoch would uh, invite presidential candidates or big presidential power players out to his castle somewhere in the UK. And they would spend a weekend and you'd hear these rumors of whether or not he thought they were impressive and whether or not they were good or they were bad or they were dumb and who he would go after. And the rumor I remember was that Rupert Murdoch was very impressed by Hillary Clinton. So he wasn't going to attack her in the same way that he would attack somebody that he thought was stupid. So there was that episode in the first season. The most exciting episode is that the entire first season turns on its head when one of the main characters gets into a Chappaquiddick. Like, the idea of using Chappaquiddick, the real-life situation where Ted Kennedy was in a car accident with a woman, went off a bridge, and he went to safety. The woman was found dead. That happens in the season finale of the first season of Succession with the eldest son. But in this version, the Rupert Murdoch character does what Joe Kennedy could not 
and covers up and buries and protects his son. This could be the defining moment of your life. It'd eat everything. A rich kid kills a boy. You'd never be anything else. Or you know, it could be what it should be. Nothing at all. A sad little detail at a lovely wedding where father and son are reconciled. So since we know that these guys love, the, the writing staff of Succession loves ripping things out of the headlines, I was very interested from the moment I heard there was going to be an election episode to see what kind of election they would do. And the version we get is is specific. If you've seen it, then you've seen it. Uh, uh, but according to Jesse Armstrong, the head writer and creator of Succession, there were three elections that he says they drew from. The first was 1960. Democratic changing over from Republican. Kentucky went Republican again. Tennessee went Republican again. Arkansas remained Democratic. Texas switched from Republican back to Democratic. Louisiana switched from Republican back to Democratic. In 1960, which I covered in depth in my Raise the Dead series, there was the first of our modern era of networks mistakenly calling the election. All right. There were three networks and they all had state of the art computers that were going to crunch the numbers on vote tallies that were coming in and then project the winners. The big honking mistake that happened was very early in the night. CBS's machine, the IBM 7090, concluded that Nixon would be elected. The machine gave uh, uh, Nixon odds of 100 to 1 and a landslide of 459 to 78 votes to uh, electoral votes to Kennedy. This was quickly reversed. ABC's Univac computer also predicted that Nixon would win, but as the night wore on, wound up reversing its projection. It was the NBC broadcast with a RCA 501 made by their parent company that never predicted Kennedy would lose and so wound up getting the big uh, the, the big prize there but since this episode relies on networks calling elections that would probably be the first time that there were any kind of shock waves that were sent out based on faulty calls by television networks 2000 is the other. Stay with us. We're about to take you on an exciting and bumpy ride. All eyes on Florida at this hour, Tim. Both campaigns made an enormous investment there. Project an important win for Vice President Al Gore. NBC News projects that he wins the 25 electoral votes in the state of Florida. That's great news. Of course, in 2000, for those of you who watched it live, there were many infamous calls. Four times during that night, there were faulty calls made by various networks. For, first, they called the state of Florida and hence the election for Gore. This led to George Bush 
calling Al Gore. Then George Bush calling Al Gore later and saying, hey, uh, uh, psych, turns out Jeb is telling us that there are more votes to be counted. And so then networks called it for Bush, called Florida for Bush, and Gore called Bush. And then Gore called him again and said, by the way, we think that there's more votes to be counted. And indeed, of course, there were more votes to be counted. And this is something that possibly could stretch into future episodes of Succession because the the state of play as it is left in that episode is messy. And so maybe in the final two episodes of this show, in the background, we're going to get the high drama of a Bush-Gore Florida recount situation. And then... Armstrong also says that 2016 factored into it, but 2016 is actually, as far as network projections, a a pretty clean election. It's just a shocking one. And so a lot of the, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening kind of vibes that are, are present during the succession episode, I'm guessing they drew from people discussing what it was like to be inside Fox News when Trump was elected. But all of them, all of these elections, they all pale in comparison to what I believe is the absolute inspiration for that episode. And that is our most recent election, 2020. Because at the center of the succession plot are two events that almost directly mirror real-world events from two swing states in 2020. The episode's two big events are a fire in a Wisconsin election counting area, a polling place. I don't know why I struggled on polling place. That leaves Republican Jared Mencken ahead of Democrat Daniel Jimenez in Wisconsin, despite the fact that this fire happened in the city where everybody knows that there are Democrat uh, Democratic votes to be had, over about 100,000 of them, according to the show. Now, since the votes are burnt, the pathway forward is legally unclear. And amongst a lot of bickering from our main characters, our Fox News analog ATN makes the call for Mencken in Wisconsin, ahead of the rest of the networks that seem like they are being more cautious. A little bit later in the episode, All the other networks call a surprise win for the Republican in Arizona. Now, this boxes ATN in because they already called Mencken the winner in Wisconsin. If they call Mencken the winner in Arizona, like the other networks have, then that means they are saying he is the president of the United States. After much hang-wringing and betrayal, that's what happens. Mankin give a, gives a victory speech and we are left to wonder and, and Armstrong confirms that we will not this is not the end of the presidential election in the succession universe so we are probably going to see more from it but the call from ATN gives Mankin the ability to make a victory speech we are going to make this call now the ATN decision desk has looked at the numbers and is ready to declare Arizona for Jared Mankin. This means that Mankin will be the next president of the United States, winning the most 
unreal, surreal election we have ever seen in this country. His candidacy starting in Virginia only six months ago against a dozen other Republican candidates in the wake of the president saying he wasn't going to run for re-election. Now, the reason why I say that 2020 is the, the inspiration here is because both of these are a literal funhouse mirror of two events that happened on election night 2020. First, we swapped fire for water and Wisconsin for Arizona. Let's begin with the fire for water. At what became a hotly contested counting center in State Farm Arena, home of the Atlanta Hawks in Atlanta, Georgia, late East Coast time, a rumor began swirling on social media that a burst pipe halted voting. Now, Atlanta, of course, is a cool blue center of an otherwise red state. Turnout in the city exceeding expectations is essential to Joe Biden's victory that night. And election nights, which I do think that it is well done in this succession episode, are fog of war situations. Rumors spread way faster than facts. Officials have since determined that there was no water main break in the State Farm Arena, and indeed voting was not stopped. It was an overflowing urinal, and it was cleaned up while voting continued. But that initial rumor continues to persist. And many people, including the 45th president of the United States, in a call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, which may or may not be at the center of another criminal dispute against Donald Trump, continue to believe that the running water was a diversion to cheat the ballot count. And so... Instead of this being a fire in Wisconsin, it's inspired by water in Georgia. And obviously, by way of creative license, the votes are destroyed. You know that votes are votes are destroyed. It's not just a rumor of a thing that happened. Second and probably most relevant to Fox News is the quick call in succession. ATN calls Wisconsin for the Republican Mankin. But in 2020, it was Fox News before any of their other counterparts calling Arizona for Biden. Um, Arizona, are you 100% sure of that call and when you made it and why did you make it? Absolutely. We've made it after basically a half hour of debating. Is it time yet? Because it was, it's, it's been clear for a while This is a decision that infuriated President Trump. And many reports have said that if Arizona was not called, he may have made a victory speech that night. But Arizona put Fox News's projections to be outside of the realm of possibility for Donald Trump within the universe of Fox News to say that he won. So he did a very angry speech that made a halfway there statement, but was extraordinarily pissed at Fox News and remains pissed at Fox News. Indeed, it was Mark Caputo's interview with him that we talked about earlier this week in which He still says that part of the reason why he did the CNN town hall was to jam it in Fox News's eye. Here's the other thing. In succession, ATN's call is 
statistically specious. And it is done for reasons beyond the control of the bean counters. Fox News's call of Arizona has been pretty roundly criticized by election vote talliers of all stripes, not just conservative ones. In fact, the consensus seems to be that while Arizona did go to Biden, there was not enough information for Fox News to make that decision when they did. And that's the best part of art that comes from real life, is it makes you wonder how much of Fox News's existence is like succession and whether or not that call was made for reasons other than the numbers. Now, of course, there, there are some worthwhile criticisms. I, I think that the show as fictional programs often do overstate how much power that a network like ATN would have. But then again, you need stakes in drama and that's fine. Dial it up a little. Two more episodes to go. I love Succession. Thank you for indulging my and my mixture of two of my favorite things, electoral history and Sunday night television on HBO. Today, Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. You can email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Twitter for the show is px3tweets. Twitter for me is Justin R. Young. You can watch me live on Twitch on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, px3 Live. px3podcast.com is where you can share the show with your friends, family, and clergy. PayPal.me slash payjury is where you can give me a one-time donation. If Venmo is more your thing where money isn't real, Justin-Young-20. Give me a $2 tip like Sam the Bellhop. I'll make you feel good. On Cash App, it is PX3Cash, and you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. You can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets two bonus uh, podcasts per week, covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the show, like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier. Jason, Andres, Matt, John Gross, C. Garcia, Matthew T. Albasso, John, Craig Potts, MC Dradio, Bugs Life, Neemeister, Unsafe DB Levels, Amanda, Yield Pinball Shop, DP for Bongo, Catherine Todd, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris Arzlanian, Blue Front, and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Molly's Dashing Debut, Miranda, Janelle, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul. 
is awesome. Brad Richard, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike who loves Frank got abducted. Utah Jimmy Montana, the Gen A L D L D L D. Really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua. You want your name read on the show? Only one place to go. That is takepoliticsseriously.com. That's it for us this week. We will see you next week. It's going to be a great time. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. This is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, three! Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.